Hello and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to be hearing the full interview of musician, songwriter, and music advocate Patrice Russian. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, this week, like Mike mentioned already, we are going to be listening to uh, Patrice Russian, who um, has had quite an amazing career and definitely has broken lots of boundaries uh, and definitely made a, her, a name for herself in the industry uh, as a great you know, musician, songwriter, as well as an advocate and making sure that she continues that uh, love and passion for music for future generations. And, you know, for me, what stands out and makes this such a special interview is how well she expresses herself. You know, there's so many people in the music industry who we use the word passionate for, and yet we're not always, I'm one of them, not always articulate about passion um, and not articulate necessarily about where that drive and that desire to provide music for other people and express yourself with music, it's not always that easy to put into words. And I think that that's why this is such a special interview to me, because I believe at the end of this, you will all feel as I do, that this woman is gifted with music as well as being able to express herself with words about what we all feel when we are playing music for ourselves and for others and expressing ourselves uh, through music. So this is a, this is a really special one for me on a lot of different levels. So I'm really excited. It's also kind of funny when Mike was doing the introduction, I thought if we had the whole podcast to just list her accomplishments, we might not ever get to the actual interview. Um, she's done so many things and worn so many hats. This is going to be a treat for all of us. So let's just jump right into it. We're going to be hearing the full interview from Patrice today. Uh, starting off with this segment, she's going to be talking about uh, growing up with music and her early musical education experiences. Was there music in your home growing up? There was music in my home growing up all the time. My parents belonged to a record club, so they received records every month. And uh, their favorite music, you know, of that day was, was jazz, because it represented not only good listening music, but also dance music and the popular music of the time. Uh, it was They had everything. And then we'd get these classical records. And so it wasn't unusual, like Saturday was our day to clean up the house. And uh, we put a stack of records on. Remember the spindle where you had a spindle and you put the records on and they would just fall down and so ours was like incredibly eclectic because it would easily be Ella Fitzgerald, Duke Ellington, Brahms, <laughs> James Brown, <laughs> Perry Como, you know, Beethoven, back to Brahms, and then, you know, Earl Garner or, 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 or uh, Oliver Nelson or something like that. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And how did you start to get um, playing music? I, I think I read that you had started when you were three. Yeah, I started music at a pretty early age. Um, there's six years difference between my younger sister and I. So um, I had all that time by myself and I was in preschool because both my parents worked. And they... I think it was the teacher in preschool that actually told them that, you know, during the day she's so quiet, but when we start doing singing or dancing, she really comes to life. And she knew of a class that was designed for uh, pre-kindergarten uh, kids. It was actually a study that was being done at the University of Southern California. The class was called Eurythmics. They were studying early childhood development ideas and theories. And uh, 
were these music education grads were watching and observing these children who seemed to have a innate musical sensibility. So I was in this class and it kind of got things going and they had an entire preparatory department. So from three to five, I was doing Eurythmics. And then from about five up until about 17, they introduced an instrument at five. My piano, my parents said, don't you want to play the piano? Okay. <laughs> so I played the piano and uh, studied, you know, at the time, you know, classical music through that program and uh, stayed in it until I was 17. And I was hearing all kinds of other music at home, at, at church, uh, on the radio, and I was learning that too. And it took a while, but finally the, the idea of being able to have certain musical language that was transferable uh, allowed me to really investigate more and more of the music that I liked to hear and that I liked to dance to and that I liked to play. So during that time, um, what other instruments did you... You said they taught you different instruments? Were there other instruments? We learned this... I stuck with the piano through this program, mm -hmm. but um, when I got to be about 12, it suddenly dawned on me, you know, when you're 12, you peer pressure, you know, you want to be just like everybody else. And your friends, my friends, they didn't have to practice every day. And those that did had a case that they carried to and from school. And they played in ensembles with each other, bands and orchestras. And it was like piano wasn't part of these things, which was kind of a drag for me. So my parents very uh, wisely said, well, listen, don't give up the piano. Why don't you play a, a band instrument or orchestral instrument? Try something that you can add, you know, to what you know. So I uh, took up the flute and really enjoyed that and suddenly I'm uh, a cog within a wheel and in the marching band and in the concert band and in the orchestra and these different perspectives on where I sat and how I heard things changed my life forever, changed my piano playing forever and um, I really enjoyed that experience of being in an ensemble and ever since then you know I've, I've always liked to hear different groupings of instruments play. Can you describe a little bit about kind of what you heard and how it changed the way you think about music? If you think about the, the flute, for example, you're sitting, if you're in an orchestral setting, you're in the middle of the orchestra. So you are surrounded by the other choirs. And there's lots of time when you don't play and you get to rest and listen. You're counting, but you're listening. and. The idea of watching other people, my, my, my peers, you know, at first learning and struggling with their own instruments and learning when to come in on time, but just hearing those different textures and different sounds. And then as, as I got better and better and was involved in more youth orchestras that were, were of even a better quality, I was in a pretty good one in high school, but there were others that were also doing different repertoire that I got to be a part of. And, um, just the idea of the sound, you know, and, um, the teamwork that went into the effort of presenting a total picture, a total aural picture. It was awesome. Nice. And so that part of it was sort of in the classroom, but then you mentioned that you also spent time at home learning the other music that you enjoyed. How did you go about doing that? Did you learn it by ear or...? At first, the other music that I liked that I was picking out off the radio, you know, I would just kind of hear it and then run to the piano and, and try to find it, try to play it. Um, it took me a while to hook up the fact that I had learned enough music that I could begin to attach the right names to these chords and these things if I would think about it. And um, there was the music that I played for fun and then there was the music that I played for my lesson. And at some point later, it dawned on me that they could actually be the same thing. Um, my teacher, I had great piano teachers, and I only had three. I had the ones I had for a really long time. Um, and all three of them had this in common. They were not limited or shackled by uh, categories of music. Music was about an experience, and music was about communication, and music was about imparting a certain kind of feeling so that the listener could receive that feeling. They didn't have to agree with the feeling, but with you, but they definitely had to get something out of it if you were doing it correctly. So my teachers would also and allow me to play music that either I was creating 
or music that I heard on the radio when I learned something that I thought was really cool. And somehow, especially um, one of the teachers, Dorothy Bishop, she would somehow find a way to tie the lesson of what I was supposed to be practicing, which might have been Haydn or Mozart, and somehow tie that together to what I had played for her, which might have been Marvin Gaye or Smokey Robinson, and allow me to see the commonality from the standpoint of the communication of the music, the color of the music, the texture of the music. And these uh, very esoteric but important points uh, stay with me even today as a professional. I still rely on a lot of those same kinds of uh, uh, means of communication and those same kinds of uh, ideas and philosophy that goes behind uh, presenting these different sounds. Indeed. Um, I think you mentioned playing your own music where you actually started to kind of compose and write at that time as well? or. I started actually writing music pretty young because I would get bored with the lessons that I was supposed to be doing. And I would start making up stuff, <laughs> hoping that my mom or dad would not notice that I was not actually playing what I was supposed to be playing for my lesson. Um, I enjoyed the process a lot of coming up with ideas. And as I got better and better and more astute at what I was playing and what was going on, I began to realize that so much of the music that I had heard as a small child that was jazz that uh, relied very heavily on the concept of improvisation was something that had kind of seeped into my consciousness somehow, although at the time I couldn't really identify it as such. But now I'm starting to get it, and as I listen more and more and realize that, hey, that person's taking a solo on the structure of the song, uh, it began to mean a little more to me because I understood uh, a little bit more about the idea of improvisation. And um, about the time I was in high school and really started delving into jazz and delving into the study of that music, um, I realized that, you know, uh, improvisation is spontaneous composition. And the idea of being able to do that very well uh, depends on a lot of different things. So I set out to try to get really good at it. What are some of those things? Well, listening a lot. Listen to a lot of music. You develop vocabulary just like you do when you learn a language or, or something like that. You have to pay attention to the way ideas are conveyed. And... Um, there's a certain amount of that that relies on a transcription or even oral transcription if you don't you know, write it down. Um, certainly playing a lot with people and trying ideas and getting accustomed to standing on the edge of the cliff and jumping. And not worrying so much about what's going to happen as much as you do trying to stay in the moment and to create. And of course, theory and harmony and things like this uh, along the way also help. And, and sharing, sharing ideas. I think some of the greatest musicians and greatest improvisers um, shared a lot of ideas. They didn't hold things to themselves, you know. They wanted to study. They wanted to learn more. So I had an amazing support group in my peers where we were all really striving to be as good as we could be. And uh, that really helped keep us going. Wow. And where did you take it from here? Um, after, I went to Locke High School in Los Angeles and there were a lot of musicians there. Um, Quite a few of them actually are professionals today and that we work together today. And um, during the time that I was there across town, there were other kids that were doing the same type of thing. And we somehow uh, in, the, in the early 70s found each other with people going to play gigs and talking about this one or that one. And uh, more and more as we learned to play together, uh, we started you know, having opportunities to share you know, more of these songs and ideas and tunes and things that we were writing. So that was a big part of it. You know, a, a community of like-minded people who found one another and then started working together and kept each other inspired. And what would you say was your big kind of break? I mean, what you, you were playing gigs and then how did you get your first sort Real of... break? Yeah. Uh, I've had a whole bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> the... You know, they've come at the right time. Uh -huh. um, upon the high school that I went to, we had a very active music department. Mm -hmm. We used to play a lot of Battle of the Bands and, um, you know, high school band competitions where you win a trumpet or you win this. We need a lot of instruments. So we, we played a lot of these. Uh, 
And uh, I was allowed actually to write a little bit for the band and, and play. And we're all learning. Um, one of the contests that we entered was the Monterey Jazz Festival of 1972, their version of the Battle of the Banks. And there was a combo division. Our big band didn't win, but the combo that I had put together did. And the prize, so to speak, was that you appear on the festival. So there you are, you know, on the stage of the Monterey Jazz Festival. It's all these tens of thousands of folks are on this big stage. And walk out there and played, and the people really loved it. And it was a fantastic experience, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, was nervous, you know, because it was a big crowd of people who were astute listeners. But they uh, enjoyed what they heard. And later, I was uh, actually from that gig offered a, offered a record deal, which was the last thing on my mind. I mean, I, I know it sounds funny. Most people would be like, isn't that what it's all about? And at that time... For me, it wasn't. I was going to go to college, and I didn't feel quite ready, and it was just seemed like, oh man, it was just it was just too much. But there was a label that had a very reasonable and uh, small uh, record deal that, and I could definitely use the extra bread for to help my parents with with college. So uh, I signed to Fantasy Records, and I did three albums for them, and the three I was allowed to have a lot of creative control so the three albums were very different from one another they represented i think the growth and the growing that was happening with me at the time putting all these things uh together it was a fantastic experience for me and uh people heard them and started calling me to do different things and my circle of friends of like-minded uh attitude grew and grew and grew wow that's great and where did it grow into from there a lot of great relationships with a lot of fantastic musicians, like Ndugu Chancellor and I had gone to school together, and uh, Gerald Albright and I had already been in high school together. But as a, as a, it grew, you know, uh, I met Lee Rittenauer, I met Harvey Mason, I met Anthony Jackson, Abraham Laboriel, Ernie Watts, um, Dave Grusin. These were people that began to tell people about me, et cetera, et cetera. And much earlier, because he had been an adjudicator at so many of these uh, band contests, I had met Quincy Jones. And at um, one of these contests, he pulled me aside and said, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I want to write. You know, I wanted to write for film and TV. And that's where I really saw myself going. And he just laughed. And he, but he was, it was a laugh, but it was like that serious laughter. Okay, okay, I'm getting ready to tell you something. And he said, you're going to have to be really, really good. And I thought that was the oddest thing to say because it's like, why wouldn't you want to be really, really good anyway? But later, I got what he was saying. And that was, if you're in it for the long game, uh, your experiences all mean something. And you want to take away from those things information and transferable information so that you can grow not just where you're headed, but even more so as an individual, as a musician, and don't leave anything out. No shortcuts. Very nice. And so did he kind of help pave the way for some of these? He did. You know, I would find out at the oddest times that a lot of times when people would call me to do certain kinds of things and I would ultimately do them and then say, you know, how did you find me? And they'd say, oh, Quincy told me to call you, which <laughs> is so odd because I so rarely had the opportunity to really have a sit down and talk to him. But but I know that, uh, you know, he was kind of keeping an eye out for certain kinds of things that would, would be important to my development. I think he took that seriously, and uh, I'm forever grateful. Okay, you guys, I don't know about you, but I'm totally digging this. Uh, what great memories of hanging out with her and hearing her story. This is just, uh, this is great. A special moment here, I think, for the Music History Project. Um, the voice that you hear, the person who's actually conducting the interview with Patrice is our dear late friend Eric Glassnap, who uh, worked with us for four months before he passed away. And I just remember us setting up and him getting excited about this interview. And I took a bunch of pictures of him conducting the interview from behind. I ran the camera, which was kind of a switch. And I showed those pictures to him and he said, 
He says, you can't see the smile on my face. I said, yeah, but, you know, we all know this was a special moment. So, yeah, um, I'm really very proud that uh, we have these uh, these memories uh, for that purpose and for the purpose of learning more about Patrice and her many contributions to music. So many contributions. Uh, and I think we're going to get into that a little bit later because she is... Uh, I think we were discussing a little humble in all of her amazing uh, things she's done. But right for right now, we're going to get back into the interview. And she's going to talk a little bit more about the uh, gear that she's been using and go into a little bit more of the techniques and writing for film and TV. So here is Patrice Russian. So when you did your fantasy albums, were you playing mostly... Still piano, a little bit of... I was playing piano the whole time I was on Fantasy. That's how um, the people at Fantasy had seen me in Mm -hmm. in that context. So I was playing piano, Mm -hmm. but also I was playing Rhodes, Fender Mm -hmm. Rhodes, a lot. Mm -hmm. And as time went on and as synthesizers became a little bit more uh, easily accessible, um, I started delving into that too. It was all about those sounds. And how, how did you find that transition? Did you enjoy it? Was it a little different? Like you said, hearing the music a little bit differently give you a little more options? I don't think I ever really thought of the keyboards as all being the same because of the sound. They were different instruments that were addressed by the same similar method, you know, hitting a key. But they produced sound very differently and the sounds were different. So there was a, there's a certain technique for piano. There's a certain technique for roads. There's another technique for what became, I think, the Yamaha CP70 at the time, which was a sort of a piano, but not really, kind of electronic, but not really. Uh, there's a certain technique for organ. There's another technique for synthesizers and, you know, the whole thing, the mod wheel, the pitch wheel, then determining the sounds and how to strike the key and velocity and da, da, da. all these types of things factor into uh, the, the, the sound that is ultimately produced. And so I never really thought of them as the same thing, although that family of, and that idea pretty much uh, occupied my time to the point that uh, I put the flute on the shelf. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. That's one of the first times I've heard somebody talk about the need for different techniques across all of the different um, sort of, I don't want to use the same family of instruments, mm-hmm, but can mm-hmm, you but talk a little bit about um some of those techniques that, you know, each one might require, like what some of the subtle differences are? Um, piano is probably the one where you you spend a lot of years, of course, developing um, a certain kind of facility, but an awful lot of time, if you're really a pianist, on your sound and developing a touch that is going to allow for you to be able to play loudly and forcefully, and have a good tone and all these kinds of things that a lot of people take for granted because basically you press the key down, the key goes down so far, it strikes the string and blah. But how the how the hammer strikes the key and that very, very microcosmic difference of how fast and then how, the, how you release is what gives people different tone. And uh, you can tell one player from another sometimes by their consistency with that. Um, and because you spend so much time working on it, uh, that's one of the things that uh, you deal with with the piano. Whereas uh, your touch on uh, maybe a, uh, an organ is not quite as obvious. What you play, the choices of what you play, the choices of how you decide to uh uh, orchestrate, you know, with the different registers of it and the different sounds of it might uh, somehow reveal a signature, you know, but in terms of just the tone and just playing it, it's again, press the key, get the tone. Um, synthesizers have a lot of personality, can have a lot of personality depending on, you know, what happens, but all of the stuff that's going on is on the other end. You pre- Again, it's a trigger, press the key, and then something will happen. But your choices of how to make it sound more warm, more more uh, vocal, vocal-like or funky or whatever you're trying to do comes out of your manipulation of all of these things at the right moment, whether it be a pedal or a wheel or, or whatever it is that you're using. So we do a lot. Keyboard players have a lot of stuff to do. <laughs> very interesting. So um, you mentioned you had a real interest in writing film, 
TV scores? What kind of drove that interest? I think what really drove my interest for writing film and TV scores was that when I was a young kid, I grew up in a television generation. There was always TV, always radio, always on. And hearing the different themes of the show and being able to identify what show it was by the theme. And uh, the different ideas in terms of uh, how the music would kind of drive certain kinds of action. Uh, basically from watching a lot of TV. Later, as I got into watching more long form and movies, I would definitely be able to see how the music was really uh, another character in the movie in terms of helping to sustain the disbelief of what it was that the storyteller wanted to, to, to say or how they wanted you to, to, to feel. Um, very manipulative in terms of that. And maybe you can talk just a little bit about kind of how that all happens. Like, does a director come to you with an idea? Do you get to see some of it ahead of time? How do you kind of, how do you develop your idea of creating this thematic? If you are fortunate enough to land a, 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 an opportunity to be able to write for a, a motion picture, whether it be a, a small one, short one, a documentary, or a long-form film, um, you do have to spend a lot of time looking at the movie, internalizing a certain amount of it, and talking to the director, who actually is kind of, uh, you know, paving the way for everybody's experience in terms of what it is that, that they want to convey and getting inside of uh, their head a little bit and paying attention to the editing and uh, what's being said and what's being done and what the overarching theme of the picture is supposed to be. It's a lot of that that, that we're required as film composers to do. Um, I think people take it for granted sometimes that they just say, go write some music and it's like as if it's this other thing. But when you're writing for film, your first obligation is to support what the consciousness is of the film. And that's what uh, it takes a little bit of uh, time and a lot of expertise. But it's thrilling, you know, for me, because um, it's a collaborative effort and you are given certain parameters. And it's about how true to the essence of what's happening and creative you can be within some very, very strict guidelines. And um, some people don't enjoy it. But I thrive on that. <laughs> what are some that you're most proud of that you've really loved doing? I think uh, as many different kinds of movies as I've been able to do. I've done some drama. I've done some comedy. I've done, um, you know, sitcom. I've done award shows where I've had to do little clips. I think the most fun still to this day that I've, that I've had with, uh, with, in terms of uh, uh movie music was the actually my first one, which was called Hollywood Shuffle, which was a movie that had everything. So I had to write every kind of way. And it was, um, it made for a great reel, you know, for me, because every style I think that I had come across was uh, somehow represented in, in that film. Did you have to do the writing and organizing and arranging the players too or did you just do the writing in, the, in that particular case I had sort of a, a lot of different duties because the director of the film this was his first film as well and he he knew my work but from hit records uh, he says when he went into the different uh, film music agents and started going down this roster of people there was no there weren't names that just jumped out at him that he knew then he got to my agent and my name was like in the end in pencil. And he said, but I do know her. So, so it's funny how things happen, but this was his first picture too. So there were a lot of different hats to have to wear simply because the budget was very small. There's a famous story about how he actually paid for film stock and paid some of us with a credit card. And, uh, but again, you know, this for me was part of the journey of being able to really appreciate it when I was in situations as I ultimately was later, um, where there was a music editor present and I didn't have to wear all those hats and could more or less focus on the music and just the organization of what had to happen in order to execute the music. Do you miss that? Um, the organization or the wearing all the hats? Wearing all the hats? Or do no, I don't, I don't, I don't miss it because I still have to do <sighs> some of it in, in different capacities. I think in most, particularly these days, in most work, 
that I do, I find myself happily being able to use the different skills that I've acquired, sometimes in different circumstances, but there's certain aspects of it, again, that are transferable to something else. So while I um, maybe have the job of music director on a particular uh, show, like the Grammys or the Emmy or something, Emmys or something like this, I have the opportunity to also be able to have a lot of say in casting the orchestra or the band. Um, certainly from the standpoint of uh, shows that have a particular um, music emphasis, uh, I would have that much more um, say-so over even what the content of the music would be like. And sometimes I'm asked to arrange, you know, for certain artists or if there's a particular medley or something like this, as I was asked a lot to do on uh, the NAAC Image Awards, which I uh, music directed for 13 years and a lot of things for the Grammys, which I did for three years, um, where you were doing uh, different combinations of of artists to create an event which hadn't been seen before. And uh, so a lot of arranging, you know, orchestration, there are those colors again. And all these kinds of things kind of fold into allowing me to be able to see the different activities uh, and, and kind of bring it all together. I'm really fortunate that I've had it like that. You know, one of the things that uh, Ashley mentioned earlier is the fact that Patrice is rather humble about her contributions to music and the various things that she's done. And I certainly do not want to embarrass her by listing a bunch of them, but we're still going to do that because, um, I, I, you know what I think? I think that she was excited that the NAM staff was there to talk to her about things different than what she's normally interviewed about. And I don't know if that's exactly true, but that's sort of the sense I got. And maybe one of the explanations as to why she did not go into detail about her hit recordings and her many contributions as far as music goes. But uh, she didn't really talk too much about that, but she did talk about some wonderful things related to the NAM world, you know, instruments as we just heard and um, arranging and composing and um, music publishing and, of course, music advocacy. So um, so we're going to do that. So the, the first thing I, I, I wanted to say is, you know, for someone who was trained uh, classically, she really had a great feel for... R&B music when she was younger. Uh, I mean, while she was still a teenager, she was signed with uh, Prestige Records and did three albums with them starting in 1974. And those are actually really good albums. Um, and then, and then she went over to Electra, uh, I think in 1978 and did a couple of other great albums. And she was only 23 years old then. Um, and just really had this great idea of composition, um, and rhythm, all of which came together with a couple of really big hits. Uh, one of which we all know called Forget Me Nots, uh, that she did with Freddie Washington. And another one is uh, a fantastic instrumental called Number One. Uh, that is a great tune that if you have not heard or haven't heard recently, I uh, employ you to go over and check that out because it's uh, it's really rhythmically got a lot of stuff going on in there. And I think there's ideas of jazz and um, even classical in that piece. Uh, just a really clever uh, composition. She also was a film composer in the early part of her career and continues to um, work on projects. Uh, one of her songs that she uh, wrote not long ago is in a video game, and she's very, very active in a lot of different media as well. Um, and I think that's what led her to open up her own uh, music publishing company uh, called Baby Fingers, which is uh, ironically um, the nickname that she got because her hands are so small. Um, but uh, that's a that's also another area of great interest for us in the NAM world, just how she developed that business and how she was able to take care of her own copyrights, which is a, you know a fantastic lesson for so many people that she's currently uh, involved with. And it doesn't end there. She is also a very well-known musical director and has directed such award shows as the Grammys, the Emmys, and the NAACP Awards. She's also been the musical director for Janet Jackson, which is 
probably not the easiest job in the world. There's a lot going on there, lots of music happening on stage. So, I mean, she's just done everything. It's pretty incredible. But wait, there's more. <laughs> she's also been an amazing uh music advocate, currently an um, ambassador for artistry at Berkeley College of Music, a uh, personal favorite of mine, uh, <laughs> as well as um, has worked with the USC Popular Music Program and uh, is really just wanting to continue that education and that passion that she shares with the future generations, which is fantastic. Uh, and so leading into that, we're going to listen to a little bit more about her talking about those advocacy programs that she works with and just how important the music education is to her and to the future generations. So here's a little bit more from Patrice Russian. Now I'm teaching and I, I probably have to wear every hat every day. Uh, in one capacity or another in terms of at one moment being an advisor, at another moment being an organizer, at another moment having to perform, uh, sometimes having to write, sometimes having to give a certain kind of um, uh, lecture that allows people to be able to understand very difficult concepts and, and things like that. So it's all come in handy. And that's at Berkeley. I'm at Berkeley as their ambassador for artistry and education. And I'm also head of the popular music program at USC. Oh, very nice. So, um, what can you describe your role a little bit? I mean, you kind of went generally, you know, mm -hmm. you wear multiple hats. You mm -hmm. spend most of your time lecturing or doing workshops or at school. Mm -hmm. I kind of do a little bit of everything. Um, as chair of the popular music program at USC, it's a new program. And so our pedagogy is, it's so exciting because our pedagogy is developing as we're doing it. There's certain things that uh, all the faculty know because we have all come from the experience of popular music. We're not transplants from one thing into this. This is part of what we did growing up. So, the information, the repertoire, the 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 kinds of people that we worked with, um, you know, and that we all are still active practitioners. So that information is really uh, exciting to be able to formulate a pedagogy that allows for this information to go, you know, to another generation of uh, students. And we're all perpetual students, so that's why I say, you know, uh, treat us all like that. We're all learning all the time. Um, I think the most important thing about it is that the industry has changed so much. And I think those of us who grew up loving a lot of different things and wanting to be, if, if it was possible to be masters of all of it, that's what we were going for. We didn't all get there. And certainly, uh, life kicks in and you've got to make some adjustments and changes and, and priorities, you know, as far as what you're going to do. But I think that we probably covered a lot of musical ground. And that musical ground came from the sources of it. The, the, I didn't read about jazz in a book. I went to hear it. Mm -hmm. I didn't read about funk. I went to see it and played it and blues and everything else that I was a part of the music and musics that I enjoyed and heard and played and these artists. That was a part of my life. So when I'm talking about it with students or relating certain songs to them that should be part of the general repertoire of their experience, it's coming from a place of like, yeah, real. And I can say the same for um, just about everything that I'm involved in on the educational uh, front right now because uh, the contemporary music and the idea of students finding ways to be able to study that uh, specifically, there's a, there's history there, sociology there, there's certainly repertoire there. There's all of these things that encompass um, an area of study where you don't have to go outside of it necessarily to be able to get all of the information. We demand that they uh, still have oral skills together, still have harmony together, still have theory together, all of that, because they're called on it all the time. Because everybody loves, you know, pop music, contemporary music, dance music, and everybody feels like they can do it until they have to. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, it's a very immersive program. 
Um, how did you first kind of get involved in the music education side of it? I think music education has always been important to me because I had so many great teachers. Um, I talked to you about my piano teachers who were all very open, very um, conscious of the delicate balance between uh, what you dictate has to happen and allowing for the students' talent and abilities to help to keep shaping how you inform and, and empower. Um, had teachers like that all through my public school life. I just was very fortunate that, you know, in every subject, you know, I think the teachers really cared about what they were doing. And in, in that care was a certain kind of ability to yield to a kid's uh, learning style and talent. Um, everybody doesn't do things the same way. And we take it for granted as creative people. We know that, duh. But sometimes in academia, uh, the emphasis is on the, the subject matter and not necessarily that of, of how a person is going to best capture and apply and understand the subject matter. I was very fortunate. I had teachers that were really dialed into us. And so everything was interesting to me. I got good grades and I was always in, engaged. You know, I was never bored. And uh, musically, um, I had great, you know, teachers for a band and orchestra and we were challenged all the time. I mean, we're at when I was in high school, I was at school from seven in the morning to seven in the evening. Who does that? And it was awesome. Loved it. Loved every second. So that kind of drove you to want to give back? Well, I wanted to. I, w I don't know that I would use the terminology of give back because it was it, the sure. responsibility was as we were learning. We were learning that the way you the way you learn involves communication and that communication makes you have to share. You have to share. So, um, it was always just a part of what we do. You know, that's just what you do. And I didn't think about it from the standpoint of having to give back because I was giving all the time. I was also getting and receiving all the time. You learn to teach and you teach to learn. Boom. Exactly. Very nice. Um, and I think you were involved with is it Grammys in the school. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, the Grammys program is pretty vast. You know, it involves more than just the show that we see. There's all these other uh, foundations and institutions that come out of the experience of what Grammys is supposed to really be about. And Grammys in the schools is one of them. So going and delivering concerts, talking to kids, playing in different ensembles, playing with them is probably the big deal. And talking to them and helping them understand, you know, what it is to play music. You know, whether they stay in it or not is not the point. The idea is to give them an indication of having something that they feel good about, they're passionate about, and helping them hold on to that feeling. So you are listening to the Music History Project, the full interview with Patrice Russian. Um, great stuff. And I just wanted to mention that we do have her full interview posted online on the NAM website. And you can get there by heading over to nam.org, N-A-M-M.org slash library. Search for Patrice and it'll pop up for you. So moving into this final segment, um, she's going to be talking a lot more about composing, um, a little bit about the NAM show, and then she actually gets into her thoughts about Ella Fitzgerald and Freddie Washington. So be sure to listen all the way to the end on this one. You'll even get to hear Dan's voice come in because he just could not resist asking a few questions. So here it is, the final segment of Patrice Russian. You've talked about film scores, but I know you've also done composing for symphonies. Mm -hmm. um, they're both kind of thematic. Mm -hmm. Did one come first? Did one lead to the other? Or did they kind of overlap? It's funny because I, I think they overlapped, but in a strange way. Um, I've always loved orchestral music. Like, you know, that, that became a, a part of... Uh, a part of my musicality that I wanted to really explore. But I didn't always have a chance to do that. I mean, I wrote some things for school and got to hear them back on occasion. And I definitely had a chance to write for the different choirs, but just as separate entities, not always put together. 
And even as a professional, when I started doing more and more work for film and TV, it would be like when they would get to me, uh, we don't have a budget for strings or we're not going to use the large orchestra. And so I was writing for all of these small ensembles and small groups, even, even big shows when I was writing for the Emmys and getting that together. And you have to record, pre-record every theme because you don't know what's going to win. And I'm trying to take this little band and make a lot, you know, give it the, the, the breath and the depth to deal with this epic, you know, uh, multi-night movie that's on and this little, and, and then another little comedy show. So it was a challenge and I looked upon it at first as a fun and then it became like, you know, how come I don't have the full palette? And then it became a little bit daunting to me to think in terms of like, wow, it's been all this time wanting to do something and I can't seem to get to the place where I actually have all the players, all the organ, all, all the organism to work with the orchestra. So I'm going to write me a symphony and I'm going to write for the largest orchestra I can think of and I'm just going to do it. And that's what I did. And I got past the first movement and said, okay, I've had my cathartic moment. It's all good. And I'm boxing it up and my phone rings. And it's a colleague of mine who, uh, who uh, lived in, at the time, St. Paul, Minnesota. He said, what you doing? I said, I'm boxing up a piece of music no one will ever hear. I'm done. I'm good. I feel better now. I'll go back to writing for my little ensembles. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. He says, why don't you enter it into a, in a reading contest? And I'm like, what's that? And he told me, went on to explain to me that there were these programs where you could actually enter your piece and it would go through, you know, some judges and stuff. And if they liked it, they'd read, they'd have an, an orchestra read it. So I didn't have anything to lose. So I unboxed my piece, took it a little more seriously, cleaned it up a little bit. And uh, I sent it, and I won a read with the American Composers Forum. And I flew to Minneapolis for this read, and he and my friend was sitting with me, and he said, you going to finish this piece now? Mm-hmm. I said, yeah. When you hear music come back to you that you've written, and particularly when you hear it um, with the ensemble that you had in mind, that you had in your, in your inner ear, you know, uh, it's, a different, it's a different thing. I, I have never gotten used to hearing my music back. Even when it's a small group. It can be a trio. If, if I've written something with a trio in mind, when I hear it back, there's a certain feeling, you know, that I get. So just times that feeling by 50. And that's about where I was that day, hearing the first movement of this piece back. And, uh, I ultimately did finish it. And it was read again as an entire piece and landed me, uh, a composer in residence uh, position with the Detroit Symphony, hmm. and from there I had I was commissioned to write several more pieces for orchestra, for their youth orchestra, for their orchestra proper, and some other uh, organizations who had orchestras that were feeding into uh, the Detroit, and uh, met some amazing people, incredible musicians, more composers, and uh, just the network just began to grow and grow and grow, so. Uh, yeah, that has become now, you know, another part of my musical persona. Um, if you don't mind my ignorance, one thing that I've always been interested in is, as a composer, how you write for one, multiple instruments, and multiple instruments that you don't play. Mm. I mean, you can hear them, mm-hmm. and you kind of know what the notes are, but how do you, how do you write for these it's on such a scale. It's amazing to think that the things that the little things that you learn, how little things add up to big things. So you first learn the ranges of the instruments. You kind of try to memorize the sound and the tone and some of the characteristics of the instruments. The big deal is putting them together and the different combinations that are endless, it seems, with how one instrument playing by itself sounds one way. That same instrument playing with another instrument sounds different. Add something else and it adds something else. You know, and as soon as you change the instruments, you change the chemistry of the sound. And here we go with sound again. And, you know, it's all that. So it's pretty thrilling and you start to memorize combinations that you like that kind of speak to you 
uh, I think I think you can't help it. It's just going to be certain things, and I think that's part of what gives a certain kind of signature to your writing. Um, certain elements or favorite instruments, favorite favorite sonics, you know. But the biggest thing I can say about it is uh, that the the one of the greatest teachers is to hear the music back because there's just information that comes back to you in terms of uh, helping align what you thought and what you meant with what happens in the moment that other people are interpreting it. It's a combination that is just like a, the perfect storm for the wow moment. It's awesome. I love it. You, you have so many firsts, you know, in the industry. Um, one, can you talk a little bit about some of those, how you feel about, you know, your first woman to, you know, write for the Grammys and arrange for the Grammys for the Emmys. You did the mm-hmm. Emmys. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Mandel ACP. You know, you you kind of you you broke so much new ground. Can you talk a little bit about how you feel about that? Yeah, the new ground that it seems that I've that I that I sort of broke and pioneered was just not seeing women in the position of music director for some really large shows, large productions that required music. And, you know, at the time that you're doing it, you're just trying to get the job done. You know, I'm definitely not worried about, you know, whether I'm the first woman or the first black person. I just am glad to be there and just want to do it and just put a stamp of excellence on it. And to do that um, takes up all all of the space. So it's afterwards that somebody says, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, really? Um, but I, when I can now look back on it after some time now it's happened since those particular jobs that were the firsts, I can see that, you know, first is sometimes overrated. You get a lot of heat when you're first, you know, there's people that understand and want to certainly rally around you and help you, but don't totally know how because you're first. And so they don't exactly know how they're going to best help you. Then you have the people that realize that you're there and they want you there kind of, but they didn't really intend for, for you to come in as a first and then say, well, there's a way that I'd like to do it. That's different from the way the last person did it. Uh, so you take a little bit of heat. And then sometimes uh, in a situ- you're in situations where you are in a position and have a platform to be able to nicely speak up about maybe something that's been either unfair or that needs to be modified or adjusted so that the outcome can be better all around. And that can sometimes be pay, you know, to musicians. That can sometimes be breaks. That can sometimes be... Uh, new use payments and royalties or things like this um, that's that uh, maybe people don't want to talk about and they're hoping that when you come in as the newbie or they come in first that those things, you might not mention those things. But they got mentioned and they got done and I would have to say that even with some of those things and I couldn't call them negatives. I would I would more or less just call them part of what happens when you're trying to push the ball forward, you know. Um, even with all of that, you know, I would say that, uh, I wouldn't change a thing. It was all good. Um, you've been playing for so long. Are there any products that you have endorsed throughout the years or that you are particularly fond of or use a lot tied to? For a very long time, uh, I've been playing Yamaha keyboard instruments. Actually, my first Yamaha piano was way before I was an endorsee. It was actually the first instrument that my parents uh, were able to buy for me. When I when I first started playing, they rented a piano. You know, practical. Let's see if she's going to stay with this. But then when I got to be at about 11, 11 years old, they bought a piano. And they bought a, a Yamaha. And they hadn't been out here uh, in the States very long. But they were good quality and they weren't too expensive. So I had that Yamaha piano for a really long time. And then as a as I was getting more into the professional ranks, and the, the pianos that I was playing were, you know, the best of the best. And my preferences 
began to expand in terms of what I liked. But I would have to say that, especially when electronic keyboards, you know, really hit the scene, that I tended to gravitate towards the Yamaha instruments because of the sound. They were really rich sounding to me. And uh, the information in terms of how the different series of instruments, the different uh, uh generations of instruments there was always something that was carried over from the last so you didn't feel like you were starting over every time because the learning started speeding up you know as we got into digital technology especially and um, there was a lot to learn a lot to do and as I've continued to uh, enjoy playing a lot of different instruments Yamaha is still uh, my first choice as far as electronic instruments. How about acoustic? Well, now acoustic instruments is another ball game altogether. I really have played on some amazing pianos. I have played on some amazing Yamaha pianos. I have played on some amazing Steinway pianos. I've played on some incredible Bosendorfers, and I've played on some amazing Fazioli's. Um, I recently played a new piano, brand, 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 brand new to us, but it's... uh, called Shad, S-H-A-D-D, the Shad piano. And I actually met the piano maker, which was like amazing to be able to talk to him. And um, I think that, you know, that's a piano we're going to be hearing about because the technology and the things like that, he's taking the best from all, all of these things with the expertise of being a fine piano technician and putting it together. So I think we're going to be hearing more from Shad. Very nice. Um, have you ever been to a NAMM show? <laughs> How about your first NAMM show? Do you remember your first NAMM show? I remember my first NAMM show because they're all the same. <laughs> you walk in and you think you have, okay, I want to see this and this and this. And you walk in and me, I'm overwhelmed every time. And they've gotten bigger and more overwhelming because there's just so much to see. So many things. Um, great people. Um, all of the uh, professional merchandisers um, have, I think, grown in, in their ability to really communicate what they want to do. And you can find everything. That's a problem. There's everything there. Um, I have to really still zero in on uh, what I, I really need to see. And I think it's harder when you've, when you've been uh, involved with different companies and developed relationships with different people and you know these people are going to be at the NAMM show and you know you want to see them plus there's great music going on um, and um, my experience is that you just have to be prepared to just walk a few feet and then <laughs> not get real far in the day because you see so many people, old friends that you know musicians, uh, salespeople, um, you know people who are involved in music may move around the sphere of music but you keep running into them in these uh, different capacities and they're all at the NAMM show. Do you remember any music stores that you went to as a kid? I'm sort of curious. Did you Were you like most of us dreaming about something? And tell me about those experiences. Yeah, I can remember one in particular. I'm trying to remember this name. It was in Glendale. And my high school teacher used to take all of us there to buy band instruments. Now I can't remember his name right now. Wow, that's too bad. Is it Padrini? Padrini was one of them. And then there was another guy. There was another one. David? I don't know. I can't remember. But I think in Los Angeles anyway, we had a lot of different places to go. And it's like it almost um, can mark what I was working on, where my career, like when you go to Guitar Center, you know, what you're looking for. Uh, when you go to Padrini what I was looking for. Um, I think it was a little bit later that I went to Sam Ash. And certainly when I was uh, learning how to play and becoming a little bit more well-known, uh, I would I would drive out to Yamaha or go specifically to Fender. You know, in fact, Harold Rhodes picked my roads right off the line. Uh, he was... A very, very um, gracious man and super good with people. And I had just been garnering a little attention and stuff and I was going to buy a Rhodes. And uh, I was invited to just go out there to look. 
And I went out there and he happened to be there and, you know, and they're rolling down the conveyor belt. He goes, that one. Now that one was just that one. But because he said that one, that was it. And it actually turned out to be really cool. And I still have it. Yeah, that was worth a whole afternoon. That was another great story. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. My daughter's namesake is Ella. Oh. I would love to have a few seconds of your thoughts about what made Ella Fitzgerald so, I don't know, incredible. Mm. I think Ella Fitzgerald's voice could so easily be taken for granted because it was so easy to listen to. Some people, you know, identify a particular um, type of style with how good somebody is. And Ella had this, uh, she had tons of style, but it would... It would, it would be very appropriate for the particular song she was singing, and she had the capacity and the musicality to be able to keep herself in it, but use her style to inform the music. It wasn't about just placing her style on top of the music. It was like she got into the music, and you could hear it in the way that she scattered. You could certainly hear it in the way that she would sing ballads, and their phrases were so pristine and in tune. She's saying so in tune um, and without effort. Everything to me sounded so effortless, you know, like it was just right off the top of her head at all times. Like she was just having a conversation. And again, sometimes people will hear certain kinds of songs and not really appreciate that that is the genius to to allow you in by making you feel like it's so easy. Awesome. <laughs> I'm digging this. Cool. <laughs> I love hanging out with you. All right. This is great. You know, we got to interview uh, Freddie Washington at the really? show. Really? Yeah. <laughs> fun, fun. Yeah, he's good people. Tell me about hanging out with him. Oh, man. Well, we wrote so many songs together. In fact, uh, you know, Freddie used to, when he first came to Los Angeles, he stayed with my family. He called me and he says, okay, I need to get out of the Bay Area. Ask your mother, can I sleep on her couch? <laughs> so my parents actually, they, they had met Freddie and they said, well, cool. You know, he can, you know, he can stay in our extra room and get himself together. And then when he's on his feet, we'll feel like, you know, this is what you do. So we played every day. It was like, that was, we, and I would play bass sometimes and he would play drums and he would play keyboard sometimes. And I would play guitar. Then he would play guitar and I would sing and then he would sing. So we just had this like trying that we were experimenting with these instruments and we came up with some of these amazing, um, feels and grooves just because we were playing with each other. I don't think either of us could have done it alone. It was the act of just being involved with somebody playing music and just being unafraid to just go for something and then they hear it and they go for something else and you hear that and it was it was so much fun for us and uh the music for the time was a little bit different maybe a little bit ahead of the curve but we hear ourselves with the music that did get out there that we did we hear ourselves a lot still and we hear our influence all the time so that will conclude our episode this week of Patrice Russian. Such an amazing woman. And I know we're all going to say that, but <laughs> it was wonderful to hear her. And just, you could really hear that passion coming through of music of all sorts, whether it be education, the industry, products, all that stuff. And it was just great to hear from her. And, and like Dan said before, very eloquently, better than I could probably say it. So... <laughs> So I'm glad she did and not me. And I just, I have to say, when I was listening to this podcast in preparation, or this interview in preparation, uh, I had to look up her Forget-Me-Nots uh, song, because I was curious about it once I heard that it was sampled by Will Smith for Men in Black. And I now have, will always think of her whenever I hear that song, because <laughs> uh, it's an amazing beat and amazing song. And uh it, you know, it's great to know that that's where it originally came from. So pretty cool. Yeah, she is certainly incredible in everything that she's done. And I think the craziest part, or not craziest, but coolest part about all of it is that she's still 
doing all this work now, all the advocacy work that she's so into, she's still very much a part of. And that's just great to see. And I mean, just like you said, Ashley, like all facets of the industry she's been involved in. So just a super well-rounded, very good songwriter um, who also advocates for music and is into the products. I mean, that, what else could you want? That's just so great. This was such a fun episode and a great interview to listen to. I completely agree. And I think that um, back to a point we made earlier, she may be a, a bit humble about her own contributions. But one thing I think is very clear to me is that I think she would be very proud of her story that we've just heard helps motivate us to maybe do a little bit more. Uh, there's so much that each of us can be doing to encourage others to be a music maker, to help with advocacy, to help really uh, grow our industry in even a small way. And I think she'd be very proud if we just had a little bit more energy to do that after hearing her inspirational story. I also have always this great sense of it being such a privilege to hear people like her contribute. You know, not long ago, our podcast had Al Bell that we were just talking about. And these two people have a lot of similarities in, in as far as uh, providing us with so much, so much richness in music and in advocacy. And uh, just so uh, such a privilege, really, for us to share those stories. I'm very humbled by that opportunity. So that's uh, our conclusion, and I would like to say that we will uh, be putting another podcast together, so you'll be hearing from us in about two weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.